0: hey guys thanks for tuning in to another startup fan podcast as always i'm in dublin at the moment
1: and graham is back in london yeah back here for at least a week before I'm, i'm i'm gone again um going to go back to, to good old ireland for a couple of days in a week or two but uh yeah for now back in london back to the noise i don't know if people can hear it in the background but uh yeah it's it's good to be back Yeah, well, look, I'm hoping to move
0: back over to London again now soon enough. So I hope to be back there in, say, November, you know, when when things are kicking off, because we do have an announcement to make today with Startup Van where things have changed slightly for us because we're growing and scaling ourselves. And we are opening something called the Startup Van Garage. Where most of you know, we we interview uh, entrepreneurs and we help inspire and educate them, and we've been doing it now for six years, and we've interviewed well over three thousand founders. So, Graham, do you want to tell them what the Startup Van Garage is all about?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's it took us you know six years to get here, but we it's one of those things where we couldn't have done in the beginning right. It's it's an Entrepreneur Club limited to five hundred entrepreneurs for year one. It's a, it's a network of stu- super strong founders. It's a syndicate fund. So we can actually help these businesses grow, scale uh, while they raise money, but also the network benefits from them raising money because it is a syndicate fund in the nature of it. And the final piece of the puzzle is... We're still going to be doing podcasts for people who love listening to these podcasts, but we're opening a studio again in short at street level, which will be a hub for, for the garage as well, which we're super excited about getting back, getting back in front of the camera. But yeah, that, that, that's basically it. It's, we announced it privately to, and some of the listeners may have, have seen it already, we announced it privately to the, to the WhatsApp group and got a massive response. Um, and it's, uh, this is the first time when it's showing it to a, a wider audience and our podcast listeners, which we're, which were really excited about
0: yeah absolutely. And, as we said, it is the the start of find garage, and we're making it simple for people where we're breaking it down into three pillars you know one being the network, one being the syndicate fund, and the other one being the space. So when it comes to the network from all the entrepreneurs that we've interviewed, we've seen a common thread that most of the successful entrepreneurs that we've interviewed have all been well connected and have a really big network, and this is where we're gonna put 500 people together. So it is limited to 500 members for the first year. And we're also putting the, the syndicate fund together. So, Graeme, tell us a bit about the syndicate fund.
1: Yeah, this, the syndicate fund came about because obviously we spoke to, to our audience. We spoke to entrepreneurs we're close to and we've seen scale over the years. And they obviously want the network. But they've seen and they've celebrated other people in the startup Fan network raising money exiting you know at the stage now because remember like we said in the beginning doing this six years those businesses in the beginning six years ago five years ago four years ago are raising series b series c some have done huge exits which we celebrate in as a company and the community celebrates in as well and it's 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 a really special day when that news comes out but a lot of the founders said why can't we celebrate those wins Financially, right? Why can't we win financially? And that's what we said look, if we're going to have this network of 500 super dedicated entrepreneurs, why not let them invest in the community also? And they can win when everyone else wins. And that's basically the syndicate fund. And and it's a pretty magical thing where obviously, look, people listening to this know that CrowdCube exists and Cedars exist, but we're keeping it entrepreneur led, which we think is really important. And Imagine you're starting a business and you're scaling a business and 80 super driven, talented entrepreneurs with big networks of their own financially back you for your raise. It's, a, it's, a, it's an absolutely magical thing. and We're super excited to launch it next month. That,
0: that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to most about everything is the amount of people that could be backing your company, because we've always talked about smart money you know, and when you're going for investment, getting the right people on board. And if you have, as you said, there could be 80 entrepreneurs backing your company. That's 80 people that you can reach out to that all have a a good interest in your company succeeding that are going to bring help to the table as well. The, Other thing we're going to be opening up, which is included in this, is a space in Shoreditch in London. And the space is going to be different to what most people are used to. This is going to be something that's going to be an event space. It's going to have meeting rooms. It's going to have a podcast studio, so you can come in and record your own podcast from it. Also, it's going to be be a, a chill out area with a coffee shop that we want entrepreneurs to actually come, the members come and meet each other, mingle with each other, meet each
1: other face to face and grow and build relationships from there as well yeah it's a pretty special thing because already we see in the startup fan community of the thousands of founders we interviewed they interact so well with each other and and they're so willing to open up that black book help each other scale and help each other with advice they're really generous with their time and we just want to take what's in that community online and especially now where just people are just so siloed and, and and a lot of people feel alone and a lot of people don't feel all that connected to other humans at the minute we want to help bring that in a safe way but bring that uh, to to real life which is it's going to be amazing yeah well it doesn't take a genius when you when you look around and you see all these
0: companies that are now working from home and that have gotten rid of their offices that need somewhere that they can even use once or twice or three times a month and um, you've also got a lot of people that are that are sole founders that are that are still working on their own with a very small team and they're working from home and some of the times the only time they get out is to go to a, a, a standard coffee shop you know where with this we want our members to come you know be part of the the network be part of the group knowing that there's other entrepreneurs in the in the coffee shop with you for the day you know it's meeting people it's just getting
1: out um so yeah really looking forward to it yeah and and if anyone's listening to this obviously the waiting list is open we are limited to 500 entrepreneurs and obviously we we need to keep the startup fan network as strong and and as um as diverse and as as flexible as it currently is as we grow so we are going to be pre-vetting uh the businesses that join they need to be dedicated you know interested in scaling raising money uh, expanding to new to new uh, regions whatever that might be they need to have a obviously a plan for the next year and we'll be pre vetting them so please do um, fill out the the link that should be attached to facebook linkedin twitter instagram wherever you are you should be able to see a link to startup and garage please do put in your details and your email address and you'll be the first to know when when the registration is open
0: and those of you that don't have access to the link, you can get it at www.thestartupvangarage.com That is where you can get it. And as Graham said, go on, fill it out. We only have room for 500 in year one. We want to
1: keep it super strong. So get on the waiting list now. Graham, tell us who's on today's show. We're super excited about having today's guest on. This is a guest we're supposed to have on pre-COVID, pre-lockdown. Things got in the way, but what a time to have him on the show. We have Morton, who's the founder of Meatless Farm, talking about his journey from starting the the Meatless uh, plant-based company to expanding to the U.S. to raising a $30 million round, which is an exclusive for this show. So let's get into the show and see what Morton has to say.
2: Yeah, it's what
0: Morton, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about Meatless Farm and what you've done there. But before we get into that, can you just tell us and, and our audience a little bit more about your background? Because it, it wasn't a food background you had before this. It was a business background. So just tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and thanks, guys, for having me on the on the show. Much appreciated. Uh, yeah, so my name is Morten, and I'm a Danish national. I've lived in London for many, many years, and I worked actually in the financial industry for for a number of years. And then I got married, got small kids, and moved out of London and to Ibiza uh, to try something else with with our children and try to live a countryside lifestyle. And with that came my wife's change in in say the way she fed the family and we became a vegetarian family and my kids were uh, eating all sorts of beans and lentils and stuff. And then one day uh, my wife said to me, why why don't we just try to uh, see if there's an easier way to do something with, uh, with with feeding the kids instead of trying to find the perfect mix of lentils and beans, then there should be a product out there. And this is, this sounds quite obvious, uh, but but she, she sort of, uh, triggered something in my in my head, and I, I started thinking about it. I looked around, and and as uh, as a private investor, which is essentially what I've become over the last say you know ten years, uh, I, I seek to invest in in, in startups and smaller companies uh, myself, and then try to see if I can help and, and do stuff. Uh, but in this case, there wasn't any real businesses. This is back in two thousand sixteen the 17 there wasn't anything out there so so i actually decided to set it up myself and i went to a research lab in the uk um, a food research lab and and asked them if they wanted to do a project with me and they thought that could be fun and then it, it started all from there me saying well if there's a product at the end of this project of of research and development well then I'll set up a company and we'll we'll start selling so it's very organic and very naive in that sense it wasn't like a typical business case where I wrote a business plan and thought there was a massive potential and it was more driven from a personal need in my family my wife wanted a a quick solution for cooking a spack bowl or lasagna, and then at the same time sort of seeing hey how difficult is it I knew that impossible and beyond uh, was sort of doing something in the us but it was very small this was way before the the ipo of beyond and and their world fame uh so so and yeah and here we are a few years later and and it yeah
1: how important is naivety in this case um because a lot of the times if, if people look ahead at how long the road is and the hurdles they have to jump a lot of that time they don't take they, they don't they don't start right it's like if you if you knew how difficult it would be, you'd never even start is that the case here where the naivety was actually in your favor
2: yeah no i i think i I think it's like the bumblebee right it flies around happily without really knowing that it's it's i guess I don't know if that's actually an urban legend or that it is too heavy to be carried by the size of its wings but you know that that is that is definitely how uh, how meatless farm uh
0: I always find it interesting with companies like this when they start up where, as you said, you didn't have a background in food, but when it comes to producing a product like this, like, so when you come up with a business idea, you need to go, as you said, you need to go to a research lab and you need to get them um, involved and you need to get them to help you. What was it like? like first approaching them what kind of response did you get from them and also like how long did it take you to land on something because i know you 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 said in another interview that that i read that um you you you, it i think it took a number of months to come up with a product that you were happy with you thought it tasted okay and you said right let's just launch with this so what was that whole startup part of it like
2: yeah, no, I mean, I think we were lucky because we went to, to this research lab uh, called RSSL, which is, is, is a renowned food research lab, uh, and, uh, and, and the, the, the person in charge of the department was a vegan herself. Uh, so she thought it could be quite funny to actually develop something. And so they were very open-minded and, and a great business partner to work with in the beginning. They're professional. They had all the lab equipment, all the stuff we have ourselves now, essentially, because now we employ our own PhDs and, and do our own re- research. But at, but at that point in time, being a one-man band, it was it would have been impossible for me without them. Um And then we started developing the product and and it was more difficult than we thought because one thing is to make a burger, which is relatively uh, straightforward because you know how the consumer at the end will treat it. you will put it on a pan or a barbecue and you will give it a few minutes on each side and then put it in a bun. But if you you start talking about minced meat, which was essentially what I was developing and wanted to develop, uh, that's a lot more difficult because it has many different uh, cooking applications, whether you put it in the oven or on the pan and you add tomato sauce, tomato has acidity in it. So it breaks down the structures and it becomes more of a porridge soup rather than a, a spack bowl. And, you know, so there was all these complications. And then we looked into which protein types should we use? Should we use a wheat based and then not be, you know, run into this whole discussion of gluten? Should we use soy? Should we use peas? Should we, so we, we, and at that point in time, it was quite limited. Uh, knowledge in the market about what to do so so it took best of 12 months to actually develop a product that was somehow edible and then uh, and then from there i I really accelerated the process fast in terms of uh, getting packaging design done uh, getting through all the legalization finding a factory that could produce this stuff under the right accreditations uh, for 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 uk food standards and then and then finally trying to find uh, some supermarket that would Actually, sell the product. So,
1: what was on your list of priorities, Morton, when you looked at this? Obviously, you can say everything. Everything is important, but we spent a bit of time with with Julian Hearn, the founder of Huel. Yeah, and he put taste second, and he's super bold about that. It's actually on the wall in his office. You know, taste is is I can't remember the exact phrase, but taste is secondary. It was nutrition first. And that's the way it is and that was quite a bold thing for for him to go out and do what what was on your list of priorities
2: for for this well i I think it's also a pragmatic approach he has because it is sometimes difficult to fine-tune and taste is something very very individual you you can test it on a hundred people or a thousand people and you're going to get a thousand different opinions so Mm. that that's that's one of the problems what what i think is universal for food is that it has to be You know, if you're making a a product that you want people to buy again and not just first time for the novelty value of it, but a a repeat purchase, which is exactly what we want to do. I mean, our mission here is to really convert uh, meat eaters into at least changing once or twice a week their their dietary and eat, eat plants instead. Well, then you need to come up with something competitive. And competitive is not necessarily just hitting a price point, but it's also hitting a taste uh, and and a utility that's that's functional as well. So it needs to be not too different. The way that you put the meatless farm mince into a pan should be the same as you would put your your animal based mince, you know, your normal your dead cow into a pan, and it should act and fry and look the same. Otherwise, you are creating different barriers for the consumer to to not repurchase the product. Mm. So I, I don't think I you know we we put we obviously put taste. Uh, I would say texture and succulence first. Those, those three things have to be there. Um, then, then you start looking at what should it look like. Uh, well, it needs to be. It doesn't need to be a bleeding burger like some companies have been out promoting mm-hmm. because I find that personally quite disgusting. But, but yeah. you know, it just needs to be something that that a, a carnivore can look at and go, "Oh, this isn't too different from what I'm used to. I will feel comfortable trying to buy this and cook the same way as I normally do because." You can't convince people to try a new product and a new way of cooking. So you need to just... There can be one new only.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, And how many... How many barriers were you up against at the beginning? Because I said, like when it comes to to getting in contact with a research lab and then getting them excited about it, and getting them included, I, I take it that you, you need to pay them to do this, Um, you know, so like financially, because as you said, you need to you need to come up with a new product. The design needs to go into it. You didn't know what way uh, people are going to cook with it. So there was a, a number of like. Uh, barriers you're up against with there. So was this something that needed a lot of financial backing at, from you personally at the very beginning?
2: Well, I mean, it, it, yeah, in relative terms, it needed some financial backing, but it, it, it's it's not it wasn't the most expensive uh, 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 part I've, I've, I've done in, in my life, so to speak. It was It was more the, I, I guess, the thing is, you when it's food, you can be an expert yourself. So you don't need to hire so many experts. Uh, you have a preference yourself for what you like. And I sort of had an idea where I wanted to go. And then I just needed the hands to help me and the expertise, obviously, on how to develop something that is a, a stable food product. And and a fresh product so i've, I've learned so much I, I mean i walked into this very naive in terms of what what is required and it is very complex to create a food product and a supply chain that services supermarkets with all their standards for for for, for health and safety and um, you know shelf life and stability and there's there was a lot of learnings we had to to do in the beginning but it wasn't it wasn't that that expensive i mean and and then it helps as well that uh, this is this is not my first startup. I've 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 done multiple startups in the past, so there's sort of a I guess a formula on how to do things, which I
0: this was your first hands-on one, though, was it personally for ha- your first hands-on one, doing it yourself. The rest were were investments and sitting on boards and things like that. Is that right?
2: Well, no, that came later. I mean, that, that my my very first professional experience was actually setting up an internet company back in the late 90s. I, I set up an internet company in Spain uh, and. Um, and and built that up to something rather rather big, but that that was obviously many many years ago. Um, and then I've done a couple of other things as well, where I've been sort of a co-founder and, and more active, but but never never as I am now, because this one is is I guess me coming, uh, everything coming together, my my experience, having some capital behind me, uh, having the knowledge of how to attract capital into a company, which is obviously also a very important part of building something. Um, and then, and then a mission—a real something. You you reach a certain point in your life, and you realize, particularly when you when you start having your own children, that there is a future, and that future of the planet, the health of the planet, the health of, of of yourself. You want to live longer, so you can be with your kids longer, and you want to pass over a world which is actually livable for them. Which were two main drivers for me uh, when when I set it up. Uh, so, so that's why I'm I'm happy to spend all my time on it now. But but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't the plan that I was going to build the company it is today. I'm Very mm. pleased with it, but uh, I was also lucky, you know, to get the timing right. You could start this ten years ago and get nowhere, and and I I, I seem to have gotten in just before it it, it became a crowded space. Um, so that means we have a few years of of, of um, advantage in terms of having reached certain distribution reached certain funding levels and and an organization and and that means that right now we can accelerate whereas maybe other companies are are still trying to build out and, and and build up so of
1: course and at the stage where the 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 research was done the product was at a level um that you think this is this is right for the consumer and we can sell this product what was the next stage right well, obviously the, the most obvious thing to do would be go to um, retailers. Um, but, but anytime we interview any fast-moving consumer goods business, they say that is the most difficult thing. Tesco, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, never mind the US is even more difficult. Was, was it that the next natural step or did you look at direct-to-consumer or any other options at that stage?
2: No, we we actually we, we knew we were first movers in the market. There was nobody else doing it. I mean we were up against Linda McCartney and Corn and some of the what we call generation one products, but that that was that was not a fresh mince meat. Uh, in in the market so we went to we, we our preferred choice at that point in time was sainsbury's because of some you know contacts from, from from the people that i had involved in the business at that point in time and uh, and we've we have an amazing relationship with them still today they were supportive there was a a new category manager a, a buyer there that was looking into to developing this whole area and and he was extremely instrumental to to the collaboration we have with, with Sainsbury's today. So I, I again, that was lucky because if you try to make that call today, it's going to be a crowded call and you're probably not going to get uh, the same attention as, as we did uh, a few years ago.
0: Can, can we talk a little bit about your UK expansion? Because obviously, uh, as Graham said there, you're in, you're in the likes of Sainsbury's, uh, you're in Morrison's, but you're also in a number of pubs uh, across the country and Wetherspoons has been one of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... Uh, I I I remember reading somewhere that they they are serving something like two hundred thousand, um, what is it Burgers. meat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the meat free meals. Um, I, 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 that's per month, is it? Or is that is, is that a year? Yeah.
2: No, no, that's
0: per month. Yeah, per yeah. month. Okay, yeah. like so, how do you how did you get in with with someone like Wetherspoons? Like, what was the the first approach like? And then how was the relationship like grown from there?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we look we, we have two major distribution channels. One is, is supermarket retail, and then the other one is food service. And food service being either restaurants or uh, say burger chains and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, but obviously, in the UK, pub chains is a, is an important part of of this uh, um, of the distribution because uh, there's a lot of people not only drinking beer in a pub but also eating. Food and a lot of this is is the convenience food that that we think is obvious to make more healthy. Whether it's it's a, a burger or a lasagna or you know it's your traditional fried up uh, breakfast with sausages and so forth. So for us it was uh, it, it was logic that we we would contact some some of these big pop chains and and ask them if they wanted to collaborate with us and and try something new. So so the way we've done with several pop chains is is launch. Uh, on on a small scale launch with 50 or 60 pops and then see does the product sell do people like it and if if so well then we, we will scale it up to full estate uh, and and that's how the expansion has has happened in in that channel and um, and now obviously it's it's really interesting because it seems that most most larger food service chains have accepted the fact that well we we need to launch something here to service the, the segment of not only vegans, but also people that are flexitarians that just look to reduce meat. Mm. And so it's, you know, it's different as, as you know, as well, if, if you want to eat a ribeye steak and, and you can do that, I have no problem with that, uh, as long as it's sustainably grown and 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 it's it it's you know it's it's not a an industrialized meat product. Then I then I think that it's a it's a luxury something that you can do on a on, on a on a special day, a special occasion. But if you're having a burger or you're having a a, a spag bowl or whatever it is, well then you might as well exchange the animal for something else. And that's where we can compete because there we have a product that's actually close to the real thing, and and you're not going to feel. Uh, that you are left out so to speak but
1: yeah yeah that, that's the interesting thing but when i go anywhere with my girlfriend it's it's being it, it's kind of there's nothing more she hates than just getting the the token vegan option at the very end of the menu um that there's no effort or thought put into where it's kind of just like you say just beans and rice or you know it's it's something that's um uh, that's the second quite... thought. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and and it's quite difficult. The, things are moving quite quickly in in the space, and and we see it all the time. But uh, right now at this stage, it is hard to even figure out compared to say five years ago what is a substitute and what's not. Um, I ordered from a from a pizza place in 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 Shoreditch two weeks ago and had no idea. On the menu, it said modern mozzarella and and modern salami. But I didn't know what that was, you know. I didn't know. I just thought maybe it was a brand. But when I had it and I ate it, and a couple of days later, I, re- I realized the whole thing was vegan, and I'd actually didn't know, right? And and it's just it's 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 so hard to to notice a difference these days.
2: Yes, and and I think that's where you're going to see the conversion. That's why the the the, the meat people and the meat industry are starting to take notice and take it more serious because as the substitution becomes better, then obviously. A lot of the reasons why people would choose an animal is not because it's an animal. I, I think most people would say, "Would you avoid slaughtering an animal for you to to get your proteins?" And most people will say yes. But what they're not willing to do is uh, say yes if it's on say if the cost is eating something that they don't like. So if if you can get to that point where the experience you had is is, is exactly the one that we we know we need to get to, where you try to eat something that is plant based and you don't really you, well, you're not sacrificing anything in terms of taste, texture, or succulence, or color, or experience. And 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 once you reach that point, well, then conversion is is given because uh, we can be much more efficient. You know, you don't need to feed the middleman, which is essentially the animal here. You can just feed people with what we normally just feed the animals. But we are much, you know, <laughs> it's a much more efficient way of of actually feeding a growing population. Mm
0: you you've built a pretty impressive team so far like um i don't know how many employees you have in total but i know you've got like something like 15 scientists working on on new products and making the products that you have even better you've also got um your chairman uh is is uh, is, is formerly who's who's formerly with little um you've also got um the head of of media from coca-cola on board with you guys and you've also got um the former VP of Kellogg's is is a board advisor. So, like, how how have you managed to to bring in good talent?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think as as any entrepreneur has to 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 do, and and uh, as many of the guests in in your on your show will will have done as well, is is you're trying to build up some sort of. There are there are the if you believe that you can do everything yourself, you're going to fail. So you need to know what you're good at, and then you need to be open minded and listen very carefully to other people that actually have much more experience. So as you started saying in the beginning of the of the program, I I do not have a background in 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 the food industry, so I was very aware that I needed to basically get some expertise in and 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 yeah, I've been I've been fortunate to attract some very talented people. I mean. Um Jesper Hoyer, who is the uh, who's the, the chairman of the company, he was the former global CEO of, of Lidl. So obviously, he comes in with a, a wealth of knowledge of how to approach retailers, how to develop the right category and the right products for retailers. And and that's just a massive help to the rest of the team. And in terms of marketing and branding, well, you also need strong people there because what we're doing is something really interesting is is trying to create a brand uh in an industry or a product category that was traditionally not branded at all uh meat right so 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 there is a there is a need to create that sort of resonance with the brand as well, which you need good people for i'm not a I'm not a marketing expert either so the only area i've sort of i'm a bit of an expert in is 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 the financial part of running the business and attracting investors and and making the equity story good so i i'm naturally focusing on that and then trying to get strong people in to help me um run the uh, the, the operations
1: when it comes to expanding to the us it, it tends to be a difficult journey for for startups it's a difficult journey for musicians, right? It's a difficult journey when, when you look at it, right? It's such a huge market uh, and, and a lot of the time hard to get traction. What was your experience like expanding and, and getting into stores in the U.S.? Yeah, good
2: good, good question, and, and, and it resonates with me. Uh, it is very difficult, and and I think the U.S. and any startup going to the U.S. needs to be very careful. We got a lot of recommendations from very trusted people and, and experts in the industry saying don't, you know, just don't, because the U.S. is there's so many, particularly British companies that go to the U.S. and think, oh, they speak English over there, so we will be a huge success and we'll have $100 million in sales within two years and and then they fail and then they go back home having spent a lot of money so so we were very aware of that when we when we went to the US but we were a bit our situation was again different because it was so early on and there was so limited competition in the market we we went over we met whole foods uh, and we just liked each other. Uh, we went to the headquarters and met all the right people over there who was they all came in just to try the product because it was new and they only knew that Beyond and Impossible were there. So like hey who are these British guys coming and saying that they have something similar. Um, and then we made a national distribution deal with Whole Foods based on on that excitement. And that obviously was the right platform for us to to launch into the US. Um, so had we not done that, I don't think we would have had had that priority on on launching in the US.
0: Mm. It's it's a big move isn't it for for a company to to take on because as you said you got you got uh, recommendations from big names that are, were advising you not to do something. You've got um, impossible and beyond who who are already over there and if you look at even the likes of impossible food being worth or valued at, at at 2 billion and then beyond meat being valued at 5 billion like that that's a a whopping amount of money to to be going over and taking on but is it that is it that you know that the size of the market is so big because also if you leave something to to those guys that there's just a monopoly that's going to take over right so yeah. Were, yeah, you welcomed, <laughs> saying, were you welcome to yeah i was to say were you welcome what what open arms because a lot of the time these big brands especially like like whole foods they they like to see you know competition because the, you know they're able to get things cheaper than themselves instead of just being able to buy off two suppliers
2: yeah no i mean whole foods is is the right type of partner for for, for, for us uh, that that's clear I mean they, they what they liked about meatless farm was that I guess our brand has less to do with how many billions we are worth or not <laughs> in our case but uh, but more about the actual the mission and the and and the good healthy clean food so we're trying to push that uh, that that agenda and saying well impossible and beyond they might have 150 PhDs in white lab coats but you know, we are trying to. Obviously, technically, you need some clever people in order to make these products, but you also need to drive the cleanness of them and try to get this to be, uh, you know, also a health decision. And 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 they like that. So we had an ingredients deck at that point in time, which was a lot simpler and a lot shorter. And we are not trying to be. If you eat meatless farm, it is not. You don't dig into it and go, oh, this is so meaty. We're somehow a hybrid between being a say a plant based product and 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 being a, a meat product you know we 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 tried to find that middle road and i think they they saw that there was an opportunity in the market for that so uh, so for example uh you you uh, you know vegans will not necessarily like to eat a, a beyond burger because it's simply too close to meat well that's where they would then eat a meatless farm maybe and say oh that's it's still very close to meat, but we can still feel that there are plants in there um and I think that was that was the uh, that was the what hit in with the, with the U.S. market. And then after that, our ambitions are simply to just let's take it slow. Let's let's understand the market. Let's get the products right. Because you, if you also come to the U.S. thinking that everything is the same as it is in the U.K. or, or anywhere else in Europe, you, you will fail uh, because everything in the U.S. is on and is, is in hyper mode. No colors, taste, flavors, packaging. Everything has to be adjusted for that market. Uh, and then you realize distribution in itself for a fresh product is hugely complicated because the country is so vast uh, that you need somehow to get distribution in na- national distribution will require you to be set up with certain distribu- distributors, national distributors in the US. And that is very, very difficult. Most of them will say, hey, you can try the northeast region and we put you up in five distribution centers and then we see how it goes. But again, we were we were fortunate to be set up national uh, across across the United States with 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 distributors because of the Whole Foods deal, so we we could sort of uh, build upon that, which is what we're doing now.
1: Mm. Those billion dollar competitors in in the U.S. How much do you see them helping your brand in a way of if they're pumping billions um, in in into marketing? right uh, into into eating less meat and, and changing uh, and that messaging driving home to people how much do you contribute that helping your brand in a way of of yes they're a competitor and people may buy one or the other but they're changing people's mindsets which is important too
2: yeah no I think I, I think they have been historically a a bigger help now it's it's uh, less so I think but but in the beginning I mean I remember when we first announced the launch into the U.S. Uh, we we uh, that was in 2018, and it was just around the IPO of uh, of uh, Beyond Me, and I remember we took off a billion dollars of the market cap. They dropped something like ten fifteen percent on the day when we announced it, and there was a lot of press generated because of that. Because oh, these British guys are are, are 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 doing something to the US competition, and and that obviously created some some media uh, noise. Uh, so that that was that was a fun experience, but it, it's not the longevity of that type of news goes away very, very fast. And so I think they are the icebreakers and they have been the icebreakers. And then we've been sort of smartly positioned behind with much, much smaller budget in terms of what we could do on a global scale in terms of marketing and brand building. But we've benefited from the fact that, as you said, they have, they're sort of creating the path through the ice, uh, which makes it possible for us to sail. I think that path is now created and we are seeing less of an effect of that as the market is, is getting more, more competitive and there's more people coming in in various different categories of the plant-based space. Uh, it, the noise is, is self or reinforcing itself. So we, we need less the beyond or the impossible to, to ring the plant-based bell as we used to.
0: It just so happens that uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've had on the show in the past also had a mission um, included in their in their company and and what they're doing. Like where ours startup van is, you know, we're we're setting to improve the uh, the stats when it comes to companies failing. Like nine and ten fail, and we want to to improve that by inspiring and educating entrepreneurs. And it's interesting where where you aren't just. Um, making meatless products and, and and looking to make a profit you're also like looking to make a change and what what I was, I was just seeing that your, your your whole motto is that if you can reduce um, UK households to swap one meal per week to a to a meatless meal that you will they will help to reduce land usage by by 10 tennis courts they'll also save um, 5800 miles being driven um, and also, water usage is something like six hundred reducing it by six hundred and fifty showers you know so so the mission that you 're on as well, how important is that to to you and your business
2: yeah, I think these things i mean when we did the study um uh, which was sort of peer-reviewed peer uh, st- study, we um, we were surprised because the findings were I think it's eight point four percent reduction in CO two emissions in the UK if a UK household household would exchange just one meal per week with a plant-based instead of an animal-based product and and those numbers we like we ran them ten times because it couldn't be true but actually you start realizing that there is an effect and then we started making up. A bit of saying, Hey, we produce a thousand tons now, and now we produce 2,000 tons, and now we produce, and how much does that actually mean? How many cows are we taking out of the equation every month in the UK, for example? And you started seeing that the numbers are really meaningful. And then your mission becomes reinforced. What used to be just something like, what can I do about it? I drive an electric car. Great. You know, I'm one of the fortunate ones that are willing to pay the premium for it, but it doesn't change the world, right? Mm -hmm. It just, it's just something i do and then the idea is of course that then more will do it and then everybody will do it one day and then we really have the change but but you know with meatless farm it's the first time that i felt that i was actually in control of doing something that makes sense in a in a larger scale and and that's where the ambition then came some hey let's just roll this out because we we have we have a product that people are willing to buy and eat and we get a lot of positive consumer feedback and then we also have the same side i mean i have a lot of contacts into say the financial world where i can attract funds from a european perspective into this so let's just you know let's give it a go and and that was obviously a huge part of the so the mission wasn't like Oh, let's say something that investors would like hearing or, or or whatever no it was it was like we started out with this thing being, well, we honestly believe that animals is not needed for every single meal. It's called the Sunday roast for a reason, because in the olden days it was something you ate a, a roast on the Sunday It was special and there, and and most of the other days of the week, you simply couldn't either afford or you didn't have meat on the plate now we have plate and uh, we have meat on every single plate we eat, and there's something wrong there as you know. Uh, the, the narrative is quite clear now, the population is growing, um, I think the meat, the, the industrialized meat industry in itself is is responsible for something like 21% of global uh, emissions, which is uh, on par with transportation globally, transportation sector, all planes, trains, cars, and so forth. Those numbers are really significant, and let alone water and land use as well. So there are some really good arguments in in, in this for, for changing. but. I also think there is a fine line to be drawn between being drastic on your mission and then being a bit more pragmatic. So I'm not out to eliminate uh, meat like maybe some of my competitors are saying. Cause I, I think there's a role in, in, in sustainably grass fed or whatever, a uh, luxury meat. Let's call it that. And then so, so you can go in and enjoy that without feeling guilty. Of course, you know, that, that's something that is, is the choice of, for, for people. But uh, but but I just feel that there is a lot of other meals where and convenience food and ready meals and pizzas and stuff where you actually don't need the meat part in it. It's just because before there were no other options and now there there are. Right. So um, so the mission is the mission is important, but it's also uh, it's also an honest one. You know, it, it's coming from a space where we didn't sit around a board meeting and try to create something that sounds great. I mean, we set the company up. Under the premises of let's help reduce the global meat consumption, very simple you know it wasn't like thought out because it's it's heartfelt and I, I still think that that is a very important mission to uh, to achieve and help uh, help achieve
1: there, there, there probably will maybe it's happened already and I don 't know about it, but there probably will be a time where the the meat producers it'll be a tipping point where they'll start pouring money into the Um, into meat-free foods and and plant-based alternatives. What are your thoughts about what happened with Oatly? And obviously Blackstone pumping 200 million into Oatly and obviously there was some uproar that they aren't the most, no, Blackstone aren't the most ethical and there was some backlash from from the point of view of, of Oatly but from Oatly's point of view it's money that they can scale, improve the products, do, do better things but the money may, people think that the money is not from a, an entirely ethical place. What are your thoughts on when that shift happens and money from meat companies start coming in?
2: Well it's, it's a funny one isn't it because it's a bit like Uh, in the in the early days the the vegans were you know how do you know a person is vegan well he or she will tell you right (laughs) they 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 were they were quite uh, vocal and and it was almost like there was this exclusive club where they were busy telling the rest of us uh, how much better it was for you to not eat meat and then when it actually becomes more mainstream then there was some you know the fringes of the vegan movement which was very much against it because it was almost like hey you know we we are the unique ones here now everyone is saying the same as we're saying so we're not unique anymore right and uh, and and then where you were, where i had discussions in the early days saying to to these rather extreme vegans saying well you should be happy because you know we are just coming in here and helping you uh, get a bigger voice you know it doesn't help that 1% of the population is vegan we need the big numbers to work as well we need the mainstream consumer to eat less meat, and that should be in your interest as well. So I think the same thing counts with capital. Like you cannot blame someone like Oatly for taking in money to help, as you said, grow the mission, uh, and then and then stop buying their products because that's self-defeating. The purpose they are doing something good, and of course, you know, any it's not a charitable organization they're running. They're running a business, and I also think businesses are probably the best way to transform change. Tesla, Tesla is not. Uh, 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 an ONG, it, it, you know, it's it's a it's it's a, it's a profit-driven listed company that needs to, but but they they are helping transform the electrical car space, and Oatly is doing the same for what is, is plant-based milk. Uh, I I am I'm not gonna, I don't have an opinion on whether whether one investor is 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 clean or not, or whether it would be wrong for a company like Meatless Farm to associate itself with a with a meat producer. You could also see that. The, the, the typical thing you always say in business, isn't it, that that you you should uh, you should try to be friends with your enemy, and uh, and and get to know them better. So I, I, you know, we haven't we haven't done such a partnership yet, but I can't exclude that in the future it might be something that's. I mean, you could imagine that it could give companies plant based companies a lot of distribution power if they partner up with the uh, with the other side. And when we're all working towards the same mission, which is basically reducing animal uh in 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 our diet which i think is is a positive
0: yeah no it's it's definitely good things that you guys are doing there and morton before we we finish this up it's been great having you on the show but what, what can we expect from from meatless farm in the future is there is there anything happening is there anything coming around the corner are you raising more money where where are you expanding to next
2: yeah i mean we 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 raised Uh, Which I think will be a press release uh, very shortly. Uh, We we raised uh, about thirty million dollars during the the COVID that we are uh, that we are using now. So so it's sort of we moved on to the next level of funding. Uh, We are obviously looking at what the future brings. It's expensive to build a brand on a on a global scale. So we we've set up an office. Uh, in New York, as as you know, we have an office in Amsterdam, which is running our European activities. We have an office in Singapore, and we have our main old office in, in Leeds in, in the UK. So we are running out of multiple locations now and trying to expand the, the business on many fronts, and that obviously costs money. So I think what, what Meatless Farm is doing is, is sort of, uh, I, I guess, just uh, um, creating more, and better products, uh, we are um, expanding our SKUs so we, we can offer better uh, products uh, and, and, and a wider range for, 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 for retailers in different markets according to what they need. We also have, a, have, have quite a successful uh, product uh, running in the Middle East where some of our more, um, you know, the breakfast sausages and, and the, the more pork-based, the, the McMuffin type of breakfast patty are selling very very well because we are obviously giving suddenly a, a market an option to eat something that they haven't been eating before uh which is something that that is is has a pork flavor uh but is is obviously plant based so so uh, so we we're doing a lot of stuff in in a lot of different markets um and and I think that's really the thing to watch out for that we are we are we're trying to take a bite at the global global market which is you know, it's quite we, we are not a beyond and we are not trying to be. So we're doing everything on a on a relatively low cost budget considering how much we're trying to do, but that's also part of the fun. You know, I think in a startup it's very easy to take in too much money and then start wasting money, which is something that we, we're definitely trying not to do. Um amazing well, look, we're, we're
1: really excited about to see the, to see the journey ahead it's, it's going to be an ex, it's been an exciting one so far and, and there's more exciting things to come but thank you so much Morton, for coming on we really appreciate it
2: oh brilliant thanks for all for, for your, your questions and your interest
1: thank you so much everyone for tuning in at the beginning of the
0: show we had mentioned the Startup Fan Garage if you're interested in joining the waiting list please make sure to go to www.thestartupfangarage.com and make sure to leave your details and thanks again so much for tuning in
1: It's
2: one-on-one shot, now the future is yours Yeah, it's one-on-one shot, now the future is yours